The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How's everybody doing this morning? Y'all look good. If you would grab your seats, grab your Bibles, and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 12 today. We're going to finish out the book of, or the letter of 1 Thessalonians today. Next week we'll be starting 2 Thessalonians. As you guys probably know by now, we're going to be working through this series here now, uh, culminating on Labor Day weekend, and then we're going to be starting a brand new series in the fall, um, the first, or I guess it'd be the second week of September actually, um, looking at the life of Christ through the book of Luke. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, Right now, we're going to close out 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're this morning looking at verses 12 through 28. Normally, I would have you guys stand as we read the word of God, but I'm going to let you just stay seated for today. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. God's word says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to open up your word, to study your word together this morning. And as Jeremy just led us, Lord, I pray that this would not be some time that we just go through another service, another ceremony, another religious activity, another tradition. But God, may your words speak to the heart and soul of all of us here and to your church collectively. May you do work in us. May your will be done at Heritage Christian Fellowship as it is in heaven. And to that end, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Language is a funny thing. I'm curious, how many people here, if you, would you do me a favor, raise your hand if English is not your mother tongue, your native language. In other words, if you are in this room and the first language you learned was not English, raise your hand. Anyone? One, two, three, four, five, six, there's a few people. Nice. There's a few people here. Language is a really funny thing if you think about how it all works. We actually all learn a native tongue or a mother tongue, as it's also um, referred to as, um, somewhat easily in the sense that when we are learning our native language, we learn to speak it before we learn how it's spoken. 
And, and what I mean by that is we learn how to speak, for example, in our, most of our context, uh, we learn how to speak English before we learn how English works. It's later in school where we start learning things like pronouns, verbs, adjectives, how to uh, break down sentences, how to outline this, and how to write properly that, and how all these things work together. We learn it because we watch the people around us, and as we're growing up, we hear the people around us talking, and we, we learn words because we're oftentimes just mimicking the things that are going on in our families, in our homes, and all around us. So the language kind of comes to us. We develop these practices and habits that help us communicate, and then it's afterwards when we go to school, we actually learn what we're doing. Does that make sense? Um, and so it doesn't take a lot of real intentionality until you decide you're going to learn a second language. If you ever think about it, for most of us, if you're learning a second language, you do that really differently unless you ended up, for example, moving to a different context or something. Most of us take on that second language in the exact opposite way that we learned English the first way. We'll learn definitions and we learn vocabulary, yes, but we learn it alongside the grammar and the rules. So there's a specific intentionality that goes along with it. When I was taking Spanish in high school, we would have vocabulary words that we had to learn, but at the same time, they're teaching us how to conjugate verbs. They're teaching us how to make words plural. They're teaching us the grammar and the rules of all of these things that happen. But the goal of all of that is to get you back to the place that you really were before you learned all the grammar when you learned your native tongue. Does that make sense? Like you learn all the rules, but you learn it so that you start using that language in such a way that it just comes naturally. When you're speaking or writing, you're not thinking about, now I want to conjugate this verb right. I want to get the plural form here right. I want to get the pronouns here just right. It becomes second nature, you might say. And so then you begin to just speak fluidly and naturally. I remember talking to an exchange student um, when I was in high school that was a friend of ours. And I asked him, I was like, hey... So you speak English pretty well, and, and you're from Japan, so you speak Japanese, obviously. But right now, what language do you think in? And he was like, well, I, I still think in Japanese. That's kind of my native language, and so I'm speaking to you guys in English. But in my mind, in my thoughts, the language I'm thinking, you guys know what I mean by that? Like that language you're thinking through as you go? Because it was still Japanese. But interestingly enough, by the end of his year with us at school, he came up to me one day. He goes, by the way, I think in English now. It's weird. <laughs> this is what he said. But the goal of learning a new language, even when you're learning all the nuances and the rules, if we may say, is to get to a place where that's second nature, where it becomes natural, where you're doing these things easily. And that's kind of what Paul is doing in the text that we're looking at this morning. These aren't super easy passages uh, for teachers when we teach things in big chunks, because a lot of the things that we're going to see as we walk through this particular passage, you could do giant sermons on every one of these. It's sort of a bullet point teaching. And here's what Paul's trying to do. So you guys know, Paul wrote this letter. This is the last time you'll have to hear me say all this, by the way, about 1 Thessalonians, but it's almost going to be identical when we go to 2 Thessalonians, so get used to it again. But Paul's writing a letter to a church that's a brand new church. It's only maybe a few months old. It's the earliest letter that Paul has or that we have of Paul's to a church that he planted. This church has not been around very long, and Paul was not with them very long. He was only with them for approximately three weeks, maybe a month at the most. And we know that because in the story of, of uh, the planting of this church, which is in Acts chapter 17, it says that Paul was in the synagogue reasoning with those guys for three Sabbaths. 
So for about three weeks before he gets run out of town by those that were persecuting Christians and trying to drive Christianity um, out of the city. And so there's a lot of things that Paul didn't get around to. He's still teaching them, if you will, the nuts and bolts, the grammar, the rules. This is what things look like. This is all these things. But his goal is to get them to become not just second nature, but to understand their new nature in Christ. Because just like we do languages, these people, just like we all do, grew up in such a way where they were surrounded by people, they're in their family, they're in a cultural context where different things are happening all around them all the time. And so as they would watch the things that are going on in their culture, they would just assume this is what people here do. This must be okay. This must be what's expected. This is how we live. And so they had a certain way of living all along, but now their nature has changed. Their identity has changed. Their citizenship has changed. The theme of this entire book and the theme that Paul was pushing on the people of Thessalonica when he planted the church, we also know from Acts 17 because those who were persecuting Paul went to the authorities in the city and they said, this man is teaching about this new king, Jesus. And what Paul is trying to do is get them to understand now that you have been saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ, you are now members of a new kingdom. You have a new identity. You are new people. That old man is dead. This is very Pauline theology that you find all over the scriptures. He's saying, that's who you used to be. And, and now you're someone new. And he wants them to start living out this new identity as citizens in this new kingdom. No longer identified by being Grecian or being Roman or being pagan or being whatever the case may be. No longer being identified by being um, a Thessalonian. But now they're Christian. Followers of Christ. Little Christ. Citizens of a new kingdom. And they have a new nature now. And he's trying to encourage this church so that this new nature won't even necessarily become second nature. It will become primary nature for the people of Thessalonica. And so as he's doing that, he gets to this section here. And this is what they're doing. These people have been saved. They've been changed. And so far, we've seen how Paul's love and encouragement for the people, he's just gushed about his joy and appreciation for them, his um, just satisfaction and joy in Christ in the fact that even though he was only there for three weeks, even though persecution came, they have continued, they're growing, they're surviving, they're doing well. We've seen his continued desire for their growth, his wish for them uh, for, to be with them again himself. We've seen instruction on how they're to face death. And we've seen this understanding about this new king, as he said, this king, Jesus, who is coming again. And so we kind of wrapped that portion of it up last week, if you weren't with us, this idea of the King Jesus and his return to Thessalonica, or to the, the uh, Thessalonica and how they're to live that out. And now, if you could think about this last section right here, if you could paraphrase all of it or put a summary or caption over all of what follows from that teaching about this King that's returning, you could summarize it by, this is how Paul desires them or how Jesus desires that they live in light of the return of this King. It's very similar in many ways to the teachings of Jesus. If you wanted to read in parallel at the same time of this, I would recommend maybe going to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
and reading the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching about this new kingdom identity and what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God and read these things in parallel. So, so there you have things like where Jesus would say things to the degree of, um, hey, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, not do unto others as you see people around you do. Not do unto others as the culture around you dictates people normally operate. But now he's teaching them a different way that's part of a different economy where he's saying, don't, don't pay attention to those kind of things. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Later in this text, you're going to see Paul's going to say, don't repay people for evil, but do good to them. So this is very in line with the teachings of Christ in uh, his new covenant or, or new kingdom teachings. And so Paul's coming and he's saying, look, the king is coming. I know people are dying. I know persecution's coming. I know life's getting hard, but the king is coming. And knowing that this king is real, knowing that you're citizens of this kingdom, and knowing that this king will soon be here, this is what life looks like for those who are in the kingdom of God in light of the return of Christ. And heritage. If I could push on this, because one of the things that has always um, made me nervous, even about looking into texts that deal with the return of Christ, is that for so many people, eschatology and end times teachings and all these things can become such a fascination. And I understand that because it's fascinating. The things that we look at are spectacular. The, the way we can look at the world and look at the things going on here, it's interesting and all these things, but there's a trap in that we can get so hung up on focusing on these things that are to come that we completely miss everything that we're supposed to be about today. And honestly, like I've seen a lot of people through my, just my short time in ministry that are in this kind of world where they're so focused on eschatology and end times and even areas where it's speculation, projection, debate, all of these kind of things and ended up leading them away from just the simple kingdom truths of Christ into just straight up weirdness at times obsessions, weirdness. And I don't want to see those things for us. Everything that the Bible is telling us with regards to the return of Christ is given to us to instill hope in the people of God that Jesus is coming and to provide motivation for us to be about the things of the kingdom and to continue to be about the things of the kingdom until the day he appears. And so if the study of those things lead us anywhere else, we've gotten off track and we have to come back to this. Because living in the light of Christ's return means that we live differently than we would if we didn't think it was true. Does that make sense? Like if we know that king is real, if we know one day that king is going to part the skies and that we will meet him, if we know those things are true, it has to affect us somehow in such a way that we live differently now than we would if we didn't think that was to be the case. And so that's what Paul's doing in this text. He's telling this church, the king is coming. I know life is rough, but hang in there. Have hope. Even if death should come at you, have hope. The king is coming. And in light of this, as you're waiting, this is what it looks like to be the covenant people of God. And he does this kind of in three particular categories. It's also often known as the, the final exhortations of Paul. And he does these kind of in three categories. And the first category that Paul addresses with them is the pastorate. If there's a section of this text that is awkward for the pastor to teach, it's the part about the pastor and the actual interactions 
with the people. So he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 through 13, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. Now, this text has two, I'm going I'm to use, let's say it this way. I, I'm going to make two different emphases out of these two verses. So the first category is the leaders at Heritage. If you're a leader at Heritage, if you're a shepherd at Heritage, if you're an elder at Heritage, if you're even a teacher at Heritage, you need to listen up. And then the other is the members here at Heritage, the people who are part of the body of Christ. These two verses teach us how we interact with one another in light of the fact that the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate leader, our King Jesus is to return. And this is the idea. The people of the church are to look up to, respect, and follow their leaders. The text also teaches us as leaders how to be those who are respectable and who will be followed. So take a look at some of the things it says. Christian leaders here, for example, are hardworking. So elders, listen up. This is describing us. And then church body, listen up. This should be describing us. He says this, we ask you to respect those who labor. And the word that he uses for labor should even bring into mind the idea of sweat. Those who are working, who are laboring among you and are over you in the Lord. It says to esteem them highly because of their work. Christian leadership, pastorate, elder, it's hard work. It's always interesting to me because, um, and I know maybe my social media, because I only post fish pictures half the time, may lead you to believe that. But I've said this before. So many people legitimately, genuinely believe that I preach on Sunday and occasionally on Wednesday nights and I literally fish the rest of the time. And I cannot tell you how much I wish that was true. <laughs> like every time I'm just like a tear. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I wish. I wish that were the case, but it's not true. The, I can tell you this too, if I can speak on behalf of the pastoral staff as a whole, as well as the elders and, and what here, it is hard work leading a growing church. It is complicated work leading a growing church. It's been said before that the pastoral job is one of those jobs that everybody thinks that they can do better than you. And sometimes it can feel that way because church is so personal, like our whole lives are ingrained into this stuff. So it's understanding why many of us would have strong opinions and desires and wishes and, and all these things regarding all that. And so as a church grows, as new people are added, as new people are added that we don't have common history with, that we don't know one another, it becomes a lot of work. And then numerically in general, leading an organization in general, I mean, this church is essentially a million dollar nonprofit organization. That's a lot of administrative work. Pastor Aaron, God bless. Praise God for bringing us, Pastor Aaron. Amen, staff people that are here? Oh, man. God bless. The systems that have to get in place for everything from paying bills to scheduling things out, budgets, the budget alone, pff, I want nothing to do with that ever. Like, it is an incredibly large task. And then all the other things that, I'm, I'm not trying to build sympathy, by the way. Because I love what I do. Don't feel sorry for me at all. Be jealous. Like, I love what I do. Literally, right before coming here this morning, we got that word from Pastor John about his wife and, and, and her, her father um, in Uganda. 
And then I also got a text from a friend of mine um, who has just started to come here, someone I've met through fly fishing world, and, and he's in the hospital right now because he's going through some significant stuff. Like those calls come all the time. And when you're in that role, and when you're called to that job, it is a joy to do those things. Don't feel sorry for me. But it's work. It's busy. It's a weird job. You're never off. You're always on. The phone can go at any time. It's a lot of work. Shepherds, elders, work work. Like God has put leaders in the church in positions of authority that we might work to serve the needs of the people, not that we might kick back and let the people serve the needs of us. And that's where a lot of the problem has come in where people in church bodies don't respect their leaders and won't follow those that are in spiritual authority because people have used that authority in ways that they're bullies They've used it for abuse. They've used it for personal profit. They've used it for all sorts of methods that are not what God has called them to. Biblical authority is a fatherly authority. It is a family care authority. It is a shepherd authority. I mean, Jesus did not shy away from the fact that he was giving his leaders, his apostles, authority. But he was really clear about the manner in which they were to wield it. And as they were clamoring for power, Lord, can we sit on the right and the left in the kingdom of heaven? He said, no, no, no. Those who are going to be great in my kingdom are the servants. If you want to be great, be small. If you want to be first, be last. And he called them to a position of servant leadership. So leaders, we serve, we work. One of the ways that you encourage people to follow you and to treat you in a way that is respectful is because you are in a Christ-like way giving of yourself for the benefit of those that you're leading. It's not a pyramid where the lead pastor's at the top and then maybe a couple of assistant guys and then maybe some elders and then it's not that. It's an inverted pyramid where those who are great are the ones who wish to be the smallest. And that is a constant, constant constant fight against our own flesh to scramble our way back to the bottom when we realize in our own mindset and our own pride we've begun to climb the ladder a little too much amen yeah a couple leaders said amen everybody else is like i'm agreeing but i'm not gonna say and i don't blame you i understand that there's a lot of responsibility with that christian leaders are hard working christian leaders are over you in the lord they're charged with care for the souls of the people of the church. Even the organizational management that we do is to mobilize the church for the benefit of the people and for the spread of the gospel. That's why Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So what he's saying in that text, listen to it again, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. He says to the people of heritage, hey, listen to the leaders, trust the leaders, know that God has put the leaders in those positions. And Paul would add to this in many other places, follow me as I follow Christ. So as your leaders are following Jesus, men submit to them, follow them, and don't be a constant burr in their saddle so that they're leading you as a constant pain to them. If, if you are doing so in such a way that they're just like groaning every time they see you coming, that doesn't serve you. But then you know what he says in the same verse to the leaders? Hey, by the way, they'll have to give an account. And so the authority that is given to leaders, the authority that is given to pastors and elders, you might think of it in this way. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a secondary line we're going to have to go through. Where we will stand before God 
and give account for the way that we have wielded and managed the authority that has been given us. So leaders, be followable, be respectable, and church, follow your leaders and respect your pastors. And I can say, if I can even just take myself out of the equation and say about the pastoral staff and the leadership here at Heritage, you have a followable leadership here at this church. I'll say that. And then leaders, let me tell you this, you have a flock here at this church that is worthy of leading. Amen, church? Amen. So this is what he calls us to do. He also says, by the way, primary, our leadership authority that's given is a teaching authority, that we're to teach, we're to warn, admonish, to encourage, instruct. We're given that authority for the well-being of the people. And his point is that the church should not despise its leaders, nor should it fawn over them, which is sort of a new modern weird thing. Like I've said this before. When I was growing up, I grew up in one of the biggest churches in town in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, multiple services, multiple campuses, big church at no point ever. As I was growing up, did I at any moment look up at the lead pastor of that church and go, that dude's cool. I want to be like him. Like never did I do that. But there are churches everywhere all over the place now where there's like a celebrity mindset that comes on. I know that doesn't exist in this church. I know. But in every other, in all these other churches, there is such a celebrity draw to the stage presence and the speaking ability and the podcast and the followers and all this kind of stuff that can exist. Church, you're not to fawn over them. You're to follow them as they follow Christ and to understand that they're, they're following Jesus themselves. But we are to respect them. And as leaders, we are to do our part with Christ-like love as well. Amen? So the next area, so the first area, Paul says, living in the light of Christ's return, here's how relationships within the church work with regards to the leaders and the members of the church. The second area he points to is kind of the fellowship of the local church. You might say relationships within the church overall. And there's something real interesting about it. Take a look at it. Verse 14. And we encourage you, brothers, admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now notice something. When he's talking about how the leaders in the church work with the members of the church, what is it that he's doing? He's saying, hey, teach them, instruct them, lead them. In other texts, he'll talk about being gentle with them. Jesus has talked about leading them with grace and with mercy, servant leadership. Now he comes to the people, and what's he telling the people of the church? The same thing. The same thing. He's not saying, and now with it, regards to your relationships with one another, just stay out of everybody's business. Everybody follow the leader. Don't worry about everything. In fact, he puts responsibility on the people of the church and says, by the way, you're teaching one another too. You're leading one another too. You're called to one another too. And he says this, he's, the, specifically, he gives three particular categories in there. He says, the idol. The people that just aren't doing anything. Hey, you're, you as a church, you're, you're involved in the kingdom and you're trying to spread the mission of Jesus in the valley around. You're trying to be about the kingdom of God and inevitably amongst you, there's going to be people, people that aren't doing anything. Dead weight. People that aren't pulling their way. Hey, encourage these people. Admonish them. Hey, warn them. Let's get them going. Let's get them moving. The second one is the timid. 
There's some people that man, they just don't want to step into anything. They're afraid to step into anything. They're just, just scared and weak and don't really know how to do it. And he's like, hey, encourage those people. Encourage them. Like, hey, step out. Trust the Lord. Get involved. And then the third one is the weak. And the idea here and the way that he talks about this, in this is a specific support for those who are weak, propping up those who cannot stand for themselves. And there's a way to kind of look at this as going, in a lot of ways, these are almost like problem area groups of people that exist in every church. Those who just want to come and attend, but don't pitch in, don't get involved in anything. Those who don't want to step into and make themselves vulnerable or do anything, or those who just plain can't, needy or weaker, just those who are struggling. And Paul says, listen, church body, come together, understand, you guys all exist to support, encourage, and grow one another, even in all of these categories. And he closes it out and says, by the way, and be patient with them all. Why would he say that? Super easy to lose your patience with people in those categories. And I can remember a thing that Matt Chandler said in a, a teaching. We were first joining the Acts 29 network. Matt Chandler is a pastor in uh, um, Dallas, Texas of the Village Church, president of the Acts 29 network. And he was talking about people in his church that he just doesn't like. He just didn't say he didn't love them. That's commanded. But he told him from the stage at his church, he was like, some of you, I just got to be honest, I don't, some of you I don't like. And he, he talked about historically in the past, like, man, there would be problem people in the church. He was like, I used to keep a bottle of champagne in my drawer just waiting for the day that some people would say, yeah, we've moved on to a different church. Like some of that kind of stuff. But then he said this, he goes, but then, it, you know, it occurs to me, God put me in the lives of these people. And I'm, lo I'm looking at them for their lack of maturity and growth in areas. And then I realize, uh-oh, God actually put me in their life as a vessel of maturity. I'm getting frustrated with people for where they are when my role in the kingdom of God is to come alongside them and help them to get somewhere else. And church, that's what we're called to do. Not just the leaders, but the people in the church have a God-assigned responsibility to one another, not to be cops, you jerk, get to work or any of that kind of stuff, but to be encouragers and teachers and leaders and help people get from where they are now to where God has designed them to be in their new identity in Christ. There is responsibility that we have to one another. And that's where some of the modern context for church, where we get big churches where everybody just attends and then leaves, can be so destructive to the kingdom of God is because we end up letting all the professionals handle all the ministry. We start treating, treating church services like some sort of show or performance or play that we go to. And we're not involved in anything except social media. We'll get involved in everybody's life over social media. But other than that, within the church, we're not involved in those things. And Paul clearly lays out to the church body, hey, don't just, you're not just there to follow the leaders who teach you, but you have a responsibility to teach and lead other people in the church. And to be frustrated or impatient with those who aren't in that place would be like being a math teacher who shows up on day one of school and then gets mad at the students for not knowing math. That's why you're there. Teach them. Amen? Church, this is what we're called to. And there ain't a person in this room that's free from, from guilt, if you will, or blame from failing in these areas and going, those are the people I want to avoid now. When God has actually put those people in your life that you might be a vessel of maturity for them. And that, by the way, that they might be a vessel of maturity for you as you learn patience.
as you learn to grow and not get so frustrated or, or, or angry at those who are just driving you nuts all the time as God uses them to chisel off the rough edges on us. This is why we need one another, church. And to just attend and leave and never get to know anybody, never have Christian community within the church, you'll never pull this off. You'll never have opportunity to pull this off. You'll stay exactly the same. So he continues, Paul adds this, verse 15. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everybody. Now remember, what's going on in Thessalonica at the time? Persecution, trouble, difficulty. People are dying. And Paul tells them, do not repay evil for evil, but do good to them. This is what ties in back with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Whether it's be turning the other cheek or, or treating others as you would have them to treat you. But again, he still affirms the responsibility of the people in the body of Christ to admonish and lead the others there. Because he doesn't say, hey, all of you guys, don't repay evil for evil. That's not what he says. Do you see what he says? Make sure no one repays evil for evil within the body or everyone. So again, there's this idea that to, to look at the church and go, well, no, we have shepherds and elders and those are the ones who lead, so I don't have a responsibility to do that whatsoever, is to divorce yourself from many of the specific commands of Scripture that call us all to have a measure of leadership and involvement in the lives of people around us. He doesn't just say, don't repay evil. He says, hey, make sure no one repays evil for evil. But again, can I add? And be patient with them all. <laughs> Amen? He says this. And then Paul adds this. See to it that, uh, verse 16, and rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So now we're in a real bullet point section, which is really hard to teach, especially in one teaching, especially when you're trying to get those guys right back there out of the sun just as soon as they can. Amen, guys in the sun? So here's where it becomes really difficult. This is a giant sermon for every one of these. But, I, but let me give you, if, if I may, a way of looking at this that you might study these things on your own. Our tendency and the way most of these things are quoted is to look at these as individual commands. And so what I mean by that is this. Hey, um, Jeff, rejoice always. Hey, Jeff, pray without ceasing. Hey, Jeff, give thanks in all circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that tends to be the way that we present them. Is there truth in that? Should Jeff rejoice always? Of course. Should Jeff pray without ceasing? Of course. Should, do all those things apply? Yes. Is that the way Paul's writing? No. Every verb in this section is plural. So what I mean by that is this. We've seen Paul say, hey, in light of the return of Christ, church, here's how the body of Christ interacts with its leaders. Hey, church, in light of the return of Jesus, here's how the body of Christ interacts with each other. And what Paul's talking about right now is Hey, church body, in light of the return of Christ, here's how you're going to operate collectively as a church, as you might say, in response now to God. He's talking about public worship. He's talking about church life in terms of how are they going to go about even their relationships with God. Um, all of these are, they're not just, they spotlight the relational emphasis between God and the people of the church. So for example, he says, rejoice always. 
does not mean be happy no matter what. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean, hey, if persecution comes, just smile and be happy about it and rejoice in your persecution because God knows what he's doing and God allowed it and God's doing a work. It doesn't mean that. The idea in that is we rejoice not in circumstances around us. We rejoice in the Lord no matter what circumstance we're in. And that's a huge difference. If you adopt this the other way, when persecution comes, it means when that happens, you suddenly have to put on the fake smile, go into plastic Christianity, and go, thank you, sir, may I have another, every time someone beats you down, and pretend that you wanted it or that you're happy about it. That is not the case. God grieves over the persecution of his children. Why would we smile about it? But... We are to have joy in Christ no matter the persecution that comes our way. Paul models this from himself. The guy gets thrown in prison and in stocks, and what's he doing in jail? Worshiping. He's not in jail going, sure, I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> you guys put these stocks on it. That's what I wanted anyway. Like, he's not doing that. He's worshiping and turning his attention to the king, not to the things that are going on around him. In spite of what's going on around him, he continues to worship Jesus. Why? Because no matter what happens to him, no matter how bad it may be, the worst thing that could ever happen to him is to die eternally separated Eternally separated from God with his sin and his guilt on his shoulders. But God has already solved that problem because Jesus went to the cross, took all of that sin, took all of that shame on Christ's shoulders and has set Paul free and has destined Paul now to be a child of God and to go to heaven forever. So even if those people in jail kill him, Paul wakes up in eternity because his hope is in the Lord, not in his circumstances. And that's what we are called to do. So if you lose your job, I do not expect you to come rocking around the next day with a big cheesy grin on your face going, I lost my job, praise Jesus. I would be like, what is the matter with you? But you can come in and go, man, I, I lost my job and I'm not totally sure what I'm going to do, but man, I know this, I'm so thankful that the God who has my future in his hands loves me enough that he would send his only son to the cross for my behalf. And because he did that, even as scary as things might be right now, I know I can trust him. Because if he would go to those extremes to solve issues with my sin, I know he's not going to leave me to starve. That's how you rejoice in the Lord. Pray without ceasing. It's not just an individual thing. Pray without ceasing. He's talking corporately. Pray for one another. Pray for the church. Pray for the mission. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the followers. Pray for the children's ministry. Pray for the youth that are at camp. Pray for all of these things. Pray for one another. Pray corporately in services. Pray at home. There is plenty to pray about within the church body. Don't just make it about your own individual prayer life, but remember, you've been saved into a community of believers, into a new identity as the people of God. So pray without ceasing. And above all, maybe pray for the king's return. In everything, give thanks. Again, doesn't mean I'm so thankful I lost my job. 
It means that consciously turn your attention to the good things that God has done for you and be a thankful people even for one another. And John Stott, who writes a phenomenal commentary on this entire book, um, for reasons that we don't have time to go into, actually even ties this into the Eucharist, ties this into communion and says, we should be a people who go to the table of God regularly giving thanks for the ultimate sacrifice and the greatest gift we've ever had, Jesus Christ, his son on the cross and then raised again for our benefit. So be a people who that is always on your mind. And then by the way, he says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God. But that for this is the will of God part does not only apply to the give thanks. I've heard that said before, like the primary will of God in your life is that you be thankful. It's attached to all of these things. He's saying, guys, this is the will of God that we would look like this, that the people of God would grow, that we would be about the kingdom of God, that our relationships with one another, our relationships with our leaders and our relationships with God would be characterized by these things. This is what it looks like. He says also, don't quench the spirit. Man, when, when God is speaking, whether it be through a, a prophetic verse of a teacher or those who come into your life, man, don't quench the spirit of God. But he also says, but test everything. It was a super new agey, pagan kind of culture that he was in. So not everybody who comes to you and says, by the way, I'm speaking on behalf of God or God told me this. Not everybody who is saying that to you is necessarily speaking on behalf of God. You guys know that, right, church? The beauty that we have that the Thessalonian people didn't have, anybody that says anything to you where they come to you and say, hey, God told me this, and they share that with, with you, you have a place where you can go and proof text. You have the complete and total revelation of God where you can say, how does this square up? And we're called to test these things. Come back to the scriptures and test these things. Be a people who understand the word of God, who know the word of God, who can recognize the word of God, who know the spirit of God, who can recognize the spirit of God, who can test these things to see what spirit they're about and be those who emphasize the word and workings of God in your life. And then he has the catch-all, abstain for all, from all evil. And all this concludes, by the way, people in the sun... Amen? All this concludes? Amen? He says in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And at this time, we have now concluded. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we have read this word of Lord before all the brothers. But now here's what I don't want you to do. Don't just go, cool, check, got that one, shut that book, let's move on to the next thing. Here's my charge with you. You know the theme of the book of Thessalonians, this new King Jesus. You know the context of the book of Thessalonians, this new people looking to grow in their new identity as citizens of the kingdom of God, even though the world around them was getting increasingly anti-Christian. Incredibly appropriate for today, amen? You know the purpose, you know the theme, you know who the author is, you know the time frames of all these things, you know everything around all of this stuff. And so now here's the deal. I want you to take this. I want you to spend some time in this this week. I want you to go back and read this and go, we understand all of these things. I know why Paul was writing to the church. I know what he was trying to say to the church. I know what he was saying to our church. And now go, now as part of this church, here's where the individual part of this comes in. As part of this church at Heritage, as I read these things, God, what would you have me do? Where are areas of repentance in my life where I need to go, you know what, I've, I've not 
led well. I've not followed well. I've not encouraged. I've separated from community. I've gotten way too involved in community. Whatever the case may be, Paul writes this letter to the church, but by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's been given to this church as well. And it is supremely, supremely applicable. So this week, my challenge to you guys, Heritage, is this. Now go back and spend some time in the book of Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, while it's still fresh, don't move on from this. Don't move what the Lord might be speaking to you. And open the word in humility and say, Lord, will you have your way with me? May your kingdom come and your will be done in me as it is in heaven. And pray the same thing for the church. May your kingdom come and your will be done in heritage as it is in heaven. See what the Lord might speak to you. See what the Lord might do in your life. See what the Lord might do in your family. See what the Lord might do in your church. Amen? Will you stand with me? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Lord, thank you for that assurance that you are in control of all things, that you are our sovereign king, that we pray, Lord, your return would be imminent and even soon, but it is sure. And I pray, God, that your spirit would have its way in your church, that these things that you, by your spirit, were writing to that church and to this church would be accomplished. That we would all, Lord, with introspection, look into our lives, that you would grant us repentance, that you would speak your will, that you would, by your spirit, empower us to follow you, that you would change us, that we would, Lord, move away from that old identity that's built on the culture that we live in, and we would instead, Lord, live out our new identity, our new nature as people of the kingdom of God, as children of God the Father, as joint heirs with you, Jesus. And to that end, we pray, Lord, may you come quickly. Lord, come and rid us of our sin. Come and rid this place of death. Lord, save those around us and bring your son, we pray, Lord, that we might be with you forever, that your kingdom might be established, that all the things in this world that are broken by our sin may be put back together and may exist in the way that you originally intended it, Lord. We pray for that. But until that day, God, help us to be people about the book, people about the kingdom, people following your will, so that on that day when you do return, that we will not be ashamed of your coming, but that we will all look up with joy in our hearts, that our faith has been made sight, that we see Jesus. We pray for that day. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I love you guys. Have a great week. God bless.